0: Should start off by singing a song. Have I told you lately that I love you? Speak, Jen. Hi, Ian. Hello, Jen.
1: Hello, Dr. Dooneykin.
0: Hello, Dr. Walsh. How are you? Are you Dr. Walsh or <laughs> Professor Walsh? Yeah.
1: I unfortunately am not profes- professor yet. Someone hasn't put in the application for me to become <laughs> professor.
0: Who's that someone? You. Is it? Sorry. <laughs> I thought you were putting the Did in you p- become
1: a professor, Doctor dunikin
0: <laughs> I did, yes. Adjunct associate professor. You can buy titles in this life. <laughs> All right, so today I'm talking to Doctor Jennifer H. Walsh. What does the H stand for?
1: Helene. Ellen. Helene. It's Ellen. Helene. Helene. It's
0: French. French? Have you got French mm. in your family? Mm. Really?
1: Yeah. Well, they're no longer in the family, but <laughs> yes. Oh. Yeah. My grandmother's mother was French. Oh. So what does that make me? An eighth French.
0: And did they emigrate to Australia or how did that come about from, that, from your grandmother's mother?
1: Uh, no, she was born in Australia. Okay. So her parents emigrated to Australia. Yes. French That she was born in Australia born in Fremantle
0: At Fremantle oh. I've been watching a show recently called Australian in Colour have you seen it no, it's on SBS it's very very good it's two seasons narrated by Hugo Weaving it's really interesting Um, sort of charts the history of Australia through any footage that was available but then they've converted it into colour and then with some good narration it's actually quite a good cadence or a beat of the show because it doesn't kind of labour on like you know, World War Two for like an hour, it's just kind of, you know, like two to five minute clips, and it's a really nice way to see how Australian culture evolved, Um so I think two seasons, four episodes in each season, so like eight hours in total, I think I'm on to the last episode now of season two, it's really, really good, it's worth, it's worth to watch, and it, it talks about um all the different sort of nationalities that came at different times, and the sort of, the differences in the immigration policies um in australia it's quite yeah it's quite interesting Changed yeah. my change my view a lot on actually culture and race things so yeah so it's Cause quite I, th- I
1: guess it would you know a lot of the immigration has probably aligned with different events different world events
0: yeah, yeah. or post events yeah. yeah like you know after yeah. world war Two and things like that so yeah. it's pretty interesting to watch but yeah mm. so you're uh you're french so we can do this in french We oui oui <laughs> End of episode. Thanks very much, Jen, for coming on. (laughs) Done. (laughs) Done. But obviously with a name like Walsh, you must have married into good Irish stock. There is
1: some Irish as well, yes. So that was my father's side. And um, I think his grandfather stole a loaf of bread.
0: And got sent over here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. A few years ago, I was back in Ireland. um, And we went to a jail in Dublin called Kilmainham Jail. And I went on that tour when I was like a kid, you know, when you're at school. But you're just too busy, you know fucking around really you know on the school tour (laughs) you're not watching you're just running running around and in this prison on this last tour we went on um it was really interesting because you know you kind of listen you're an adult you're kind of oh this is really interesting and we're talking about how kids who basically got caught in the street like you know breaking glass or you know spitting at somebody were like arrested put in this jail so and kept there for up to like eight nine months and then just deported to australia like a kind of a quarantine before they went, and they were just gone, like, right, off you go, off to the colony. Absolutely bonkers. Yeah. Frightening. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That might happen to us in the future. We might get sent off to China.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Especially if Western
0: Australia secedes at the moment. Anyway, we won't get down the road on politics. So, Jen, you're, you're here in the... Don't be holding... She's holding the, the, the study we're going to talk about today, like you're going to... In a in court. We're not in a court. It's all it's right. Just, just put it down relax. It's going to fall off. You're going to get nervous. I want to talk about you first. Um, a lot of people kind of wonder how people get into sleep. And I often say, like, I wasn't sitting in school at 15 looking out the window going, someday I'm going to be a sleep <laughs> scientist, you know. How how did you get into this area? Because it's not something that's clearly defined in an educational sense.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. And probably less so even now because, um, I mean, as much as there are the sort of sleep profession is evolving, we don't have any formal education pathways for it but that's a whole other topic <laughs> um <yeah>. next week <laughs> so i uh i did a science degree um i loved playing tennis thought that'd be great i'll just play tennis all day i'll do sports science <laughs> so i did sports science didn't really know what i wanted to do um towards the end of the the degree i thought Look, oh, maybe i'll do a a grad dip be you know so i've got a teaching qualification and do something didn't want to be a teacher though um, but happened to stumble across in my third year the cardiac rehabilitation and that was it I was sold I wanted to be a cardiac rehab exercise physiologist that was what I was going to do so I did a master's and a PhD in that area and all throughout that I was also working in cardiac rehab gyms um, or yeah in rehab gyms as exercise physiologist and then, and I really enjoyed it, loved speaking to the patients, you know, felt like, you know, you, you can make quite a difference to individuals' lives at an individual level. But didn't really, I guess it wasn't challenging. I thought, oh, I can't spend the rest of my life, you know, teaching someone how to stretch a calf muscle. So I wanted to do research as well. And, you know, there were, you, know you don't fall into a job where you get half-time clinical, half-time research you know at yeah. the a, a, a job that's like that so but at the end I mean coming towards the end of my PhD I, my scholarship ran out and I needed to um, get a job so I actually got a job in a sleep lab and because you don't need you know you just need a, a science degree or a nursing degree or psychology or uh, in most sleep labs and yeah I thought it was really interesting and um, finished the PhD I mean I pretty much finished you know as I was starting that job really and um, worked in the sleep lab for a few months and bumped into uh, Peter Eastwood who I've been working who I've been working with you know basically ever since then but at that time I'd met Peter previously but um, and had sort of co-written a power we had a, a, a paper in common and um, but, yeah, had a chat to him and he needed someone to come and do research. And so he said, what about a postdoc in sleep? And I thought, oh, why not? Like, you know, there's an overlap between cardiac uh, physiology and mm-hmm. exercise physiology and cardiac health and sleep. It'd be really interesting. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I sort of kept my finger in cardiac rehab for a little while, uh, but then it just became a bit, a bit hard to do both so because you know working sleep hours doing sleep research yeah. um yeah it was a bit challenging but oh uh, yeah really interesting you know working in sleep learning I mean I pretty much did a second PhD in in sleep you know had to learn a whole new area but um yeah I really haven't looked back I think it's such an interesting field you know so much we can learn still so
0: yeah it's pretty it's pretty young isn't it really if you think about mm. yeah I think there's just people often think that oh well why would you study sleep you just like go to sleep you know or you just sleep and we know it's for repair and recovery and that's it but there's so much we still don't know and like I often say to people so it's only the late 50s early 60s we understood what sleep stages were like REM and non-REM It's so like the 70s and 80s we really had sleep medicine as a discipline and since 2010 we've seen only a spike in research around athlete, athletic performance and you put those kind of markers out and people go what? like yeah like we are not we're in the infantile stages of sleep I think if you want to if you were to say, like we're like you know, pre-adolescent, we're in like 10, 11 years of age of our understanding of what's going on, right? Really. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, the thing is, I, I think what's so great about it is that people understand. You know, they they go, oh, of course, sleep is beneficial. Yeah, of course, yeah. sleep improves athletic performance. The problem is, we we don't understand. You know, we don't have the numbers. We we can't can't, can't ab- we we aren't able to quantify it at this point, mm-hmm. or not much of it, not all of it. Um, But we also don't understand why, and and that's the exciting bit is that we can we can look at these mechanisms as well. So much that we can learn.
0: Yeah, and there's not what I like about it as well is you can use nearly like an engineering method where you're kind of reducing or take. It's a reductionist type approach to sleep. If we deprive people of X amount of sleep, if we deprive them over a period of time or one night or we manipulate the different stages of terms of restricting them then we know that certain things happen but we're still like near, it's nearly like a geological survey we're still putting out these outer markers well we know if we do this this happens and if this happens over here this happens but we still haven't really kind of colored in in those boxes and know exactly what happens and then on top of that there's so much difference between Individuals. There's so much differences between, we'll say,
1: night to night. uh
0: night to night. or so much differences between sort of, sort of ethnic origin, uh, different ethnic groups, and then you overlay communities, social structures, uh, working schedules, age groups. You know, and it just goes on and on. It's the perfect multifactorial analysis you can run, and it's just never ending. And it's really, I, that's what I find so interesting about it, that there's so many different things and to do. And frustrating. And frustrating. <laughs> but what what is also cool about it as well is that, because of that, it does bring, because there's no pathway, people don't look at it and go, all right, I'll do an undergrad and sleep, a postgrad and sleep, and a PhD and sleep and study it. What it does do is bring in a lot of different people from a lot of different angles, which I think is positive at the moment because what's happening is you're getting lots of different ideas from like sports scientists to you know, exercise physiologists to, uh, psychology to industry people to all sorts of people coming in so it's a real it makes for good debate and if you're open to good debate it's great if you're not it's it's not good and um, but if you're open to good debate and and formulate new ideas and not married to a, a hypothesis um, or an outcome I think it's an awesome field in that respect because we are kind of at that forefront of the sleep world that's how yeah. I feel about it and like you said it's frustrating and brilliant as well at the same time but you can't give definitive answers you yeah. can't go yes and no, and people get frustrated. I think a little bit with that, but I think that's most disciplines. There's never a kind of a binary outcome.
1: Yeah, that's right. There is a lot of grey. Oh heaps. In a yeah. lot of life. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the the other good thing about the sleep field, and you know all these other, um, I guess, uh, interactions with other fields, is that it's such. A, it is a very, um, it's a very collegial field. I think that, and maybe I think perhaps. It's partly because it is so new um, That science is needed Scientists are needed um, And everyone recognises that And everyone respects everyone else Who's trying to increase our knowledge in the area But I I think that it is I mean, I came from a cardiovascular background And yeah, it's very collegial In comparison to some other areas of, of health, medicine
0: that's interesting, but so on top of that, and I think you're right, it is collegiate in, in some aspects, but do you find that recently sleep has become a bit of a buzz topic or a buzzword, and now we have people going, oh, well, if I get a few papers there in the sleep world, it kind of makes me a sleep person, yeah. or they're publishing in non-sleep related areas, such as, I don't know, nutrition or geriatrics or whatever it might be, and then that automatically people are saying they're a sleep scientist.
1: Yeah, that's, it's, it can be a bit concerning that, you know, people without expertise, proper expertise and yeah. good understanding, um, that it's it's a little bit like pseudoscience.
0: Mm.
1: And and people who, you know, are reading those articles don't know the difference. That's and, right, And yeah. so they, you, you're exactly right. They can believe or they're a bit misinformed that someone might be an expert when they're actually not
0: yeah i think that that's 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 one thing that scares me But i think not scares me what worries me a little bit for the field itself but i think that happens in every field i think you're right people people are going oh well that's like yeah, yeah that's i'll just encroach over there you know yeah
1: some people are very good at talking their own skills up and elaborating yeah, <laughs> on, yeah. on what they can and can't do so well on what they can do
0: <laughs> yeah yeah more so what yeah. they can do yeah it's yeah. like when people talk talk about you know if i go in and work with a business or athletes um I feel very comfortable in that more chronobiology space than as opposed to like sleep science or sleep medicine but if you put me up at the local hospital here working with you guys I would be way out of my comfort zone there would be elements I would know obviously from the basics but if I was running some of the trials and some of the studies you guys run in the hospital it would be completely out of my field and it would be the same for me you
1: know dealing with chronobiology and you know I'd be you know you know the basics Um, but you know, I, I would prefer to defer to experts yeah. in that field.
0: And I think that's the key, as well as knowing that even within the sleep world, there is multiple um, dimensions of the sleep world. Like we're just saying, the chronobiology aspect, but even the chronobiology aspect, if you want to break it down between athletes and industry, is very different. And then even between industry. So we just had a paper accepted for publication in uh, Applied Ergonomics last week, which is a safety journal. And that's looking at shift working in mining, in fly and fly out which is very different than working like in a residential setting. Let's say if you're working with ambulance drivers, uh, paramedics, for example, very, very different set of circumstances again. So not all things are equal as well. So, yeah, the more you drill down, the more you find more shades of grey. And I think if you like, if you get comfortable with being uncomfortable, it's cool. But for other people, it can be really frustrating. I see clients, when I talk to clients as well, and they're like, well, what's the answer to this? Like, well, it depends. and it's could be this this or this and here's the kind of risk zone or the exposure and like you can see them going like you don't even know what you're talking about they look at you as if like you're an idiot I'm like yeah well we don't know what we're talking about this is uh, what we know today
1: yeah so and I think there's more of that in the in the chronobiology field because there are so many variables so many factors yeah and uh, yeah so it's you can't there can't there hasn't been that many studies that have been able to answer all of those questions mm-hmm. Whilst controlling for all of those factors or varying, you know, an individual factor, so I think there is far more of that in in the chrono field. Um, I but I mean, this is where you know we need the experts who have a good knowledge, a good understanding of what there is available to be able to try and speculate.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it's it is it is it is a bit difficult. So Jen, these days you've been um, obviously we're going to come to a very uh, interesting paper in a moment, but. Since you've done your postdoc and you've been working here at UWA, um, University of Western Australia, <laughs> the amount of people that said to me, "Are you University of Western Sydney?" I'm like, "Where did you get Sydney out oh, of University of Western Australia?" But anyway, I don't know why that happens. And um, what other kind of research have you have you been working on over the sort of the, the, the post postdoc years uh, over the last sort of fifteen twenty years here?
1: Yeah, so it started out largely looking at the pathogenesis of of obstructive sleep apnea and i've been fortunate to work with um, a couple of people who you know have been integral in i guess developing a, a fairly unique method of you know looking at the pathogenesis of OSA and that's us- using anesthesia so and those people david hillman and peter eastwood and they worked together in that field for a long time and they've you know generated a lot of really high you know high impact um you know data from their work together and um, so yeah we we utilized the you know basically anesthesia as a model of sleep to answer a number of questions about the the pathogenesis of OSA and look at different interventions potentially for manipulating airway collapsibility or modifying airway collapsibility. Um, yeah, because, because anaesthesia is, the, or the way the airway behaves during anaesthesia is similar to the way it behaves during sleep, that's why that model was used. Um, but, you know, it meant that we could do studies during the day and we could control a lot of other factors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we could keep the person on their back, you know, their head in a, you know, single position. Um, yeah, so, and, you know, they weren't changing stages of sleep, you know, they were in the anaesthetised state and that was it. They were always in a, um, anaesthetised to the level that they were spontaneously breathing. They had to be breathing on their own, um. Yeah, so I did a lot of work in, in that area. I um, did a, a few um, clinical trials looking at different neurostimulations, or st- neurostimulation techniques for treating obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and, yeah, still involved in, in a clinical trial uh, looking at that. Um, and And I'm trying to think along the way, Oh, a few smaller studies looking at um, whether or not we can predict uh, adverse events, post-operative respiratory adverse events in particular from making a measurement of airway collapsibility during anesthesia. So sort of I guess extending you know our understand, our knowledge that we gained you know from measuring airway collapsibility during anesthesia into a you know well can this be useful you know for the the surgical yeah, you know yeah. world um, and patient safety and i guess the step beyond that uh, we haven't quite done uh, which is what i w- i would really love to do is look at whether or not we can make a measure of airway collapsibility in people during anesthesia because lots of people have anesthesias for you know different surgical procedures yeah, yeah. if we can make a measure can we identify people who've got obstructive sleep apnea from that measure during oh, surgery yeah, yeah. because um, you know it's, it's a lot of osa is undiagnosed so if we could diagnose or assess everyone while they're anesthetized oh,
0: yeah, so they would have to come into a lab and do all right yeah, like exactly and just like right you fit this criteria so to speak mm. and yeah. yeah
1: so yeah when we haven't quite got to that study, um, kind of doing it in kids at the moment, we'll hopefully be able to answer that question, uh, but n- not, not in adults yet.
0: A couple of questions on being anaesthetised is, um, when we're under anaesthesia, that's the correct word, I'm not sure, um, how, how do we sleep, like we talk about, we have like stage one sleep, two and three and REM sleep, is it the same as being asleep? Is there, is there a stage of sleep that occurs during that phase? The, here, you won't even get a straight answer here. I, yeah, you know you won't, you're about. not going <laughs> to get... No, and that's what I was about to say. Yeah. I actually can't
1: answer that with... With, yeah, definitive certainty. Um, but what I can tell you is that the EEG looks like slow-wave sleep.
0: So stage three, but it looks will depend like
1: upon the depth of anaesthesia and the type of anaesthesia as well.
0: Yeah, and the so, duration,
1: and that yeah, the duration. Although if they're stable, it the EEG is going to look fairly consistent. Um, I my understanding is that they don't classify people as uh, different stages or depths of anaesthesia based on what the EEG looks like although in saying that it is kind of how they measure the depth of anesthesia if they are trying to quantify it but i don't think there's there's names i guess what i is what i'm saying yeah that's right there's this sort of you know there's a number of different devices that anesthetists will use to quantify the depth of anesthesia um in based on eeg uh pr- predominantly some of them are also based on eemg um, oh, EEG plus EMG.
0: So EEG is measuring the brain waves and EMG is measuring basically muscular Mus- activity. That's okay.
1: right, yeah. So they will quantify the depth of anesthesia um, and give you a a, basic, a numerical value, predominantly is how they work. Yeah. Um, but then there are also uh, qualitative sedation scales where, you know, they'll... You know range from person is awake and eyes open responsive to to
0: like you're at the dentist getting a fill-in
1: yeah name yeah. you know touch sound you know they yeah, can yeah. respond to um, rouses to when name is called loudly, um, and then rouses to pain um, and then you know unresponsive yeah, yeah, yeah. so there's different sort of qualitative levels of measures of sedation
0: yeah Interesting. And then, what about a number of people talk about after uh, undergoing a surgery where they've been completely out, like for an hour, two hours, three hours, where they talk about disruption to sleep and sleep timing, sleep quality, basically lack of energy, falling asleep at weird times uh, for for days and weeks after an event. Have you looked at yeah,
1: that? Yeah. No, I don't. I really don't know much about that. But I would say that uh, some of it. Or most of it is probably not likely related to the anesthesia it's probably related to the medication that they're taking because of the reason that they had the anesthesia Yeah, you know, they're I, taking opioids or
0: yeah i read some review papers on it last year and i was looking at particularly because i had a problem myself for a, for about three or four weeks and it was exactly that it was linked to the anesthesia the length the length of the operation so the longer the operation the more likely you would have it for more weeks the type of uh, drug that was used but then also your body's healing afterwards especially if it's a major surgery and then also opioids, painkillers whatever you want to call them and then you know your whole recovery schedule as well where you're in hospital or out of hospital where you're getting yeah, walking up at two, yeah. 2 or 3 2 or 3 yeah. o'clock in the morning to get obs done So, but it could take all of those factors it was again it was more like a, it was more like a framework they proposed from the systematic review as opposed to like this is accountable for 10% this is 20% or if you eliminate this this happens it was more like here's all the kind of inputs to sleep disturbances in the days and weeks post-operative and you know it can be it, but basically it was kind of saying you know it, it kind of washes out within you know four to six weeks so but the th- the key i got from it was the longer you're under the longer you have sleep disturbances afterwards and the higher the, the surgery in terms of like i don't know trauma like as are they, they going to cut in to remove a mole or they're going to cut in and chop off a leg So the more trauma associated with the surgery if you want want to call it that the longer that will be as well so that was kind of interesting
1: yeah that is interesting yeah i mean you can imagine that the longer you're anesthetized you know potentially if it's a restorative state you know if you are in slow wave sleep or Mm. you know a deep sleep state maybe that is has a restorative function and i mean that's effectively what they do to people when they're in icu and they will sedate them to a level that they don't respond yeah um so you can imagine that you know potentially you, you are manipulating the you're going to be manipulating sleep schedules and circadian biology you know you throw them in as well you add bright lights at different times yeah, of the day yeah. and whatnot yeah
0: yeah it's interesting like so like and that comes back to our kind of a conversation a few minutes ago so many different factors that affect this yeah. it's really hard to kind of Put a lot of inputs in and, and come out with a bunch of outputs this is why i find kind of interesting if you want to classify sleep as a as a biological science it's not like engineering where you go right i'm going to put five inputs into this sausage machine dial it up to x percent and out comes the sausage at the other end because it's not like that it's it's not as easy as that and that's 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 the challenge i think every time
1: yeah that's right with those engineers who you know make those bridges that collapse they've got no excuse <laughs>
0: <laughs> they really don't, yeah. I love, I love actually talking to engineers sometimes because you can see a few of them in the room. They're like, "Well, there must be just a way we can stop this happening." Yeah. I'm like, "What do you mean? Surely someone must have invented a tablet or a pill or something we can give people just to stop them feeling sleepy, you know?" Or surely we can just like manipulate these variables. I'm like, "Man, I wish we could," like you know. What? But it's just, it's a really different way of thinking, you know. It's it's quite it's quite interesting. We're like, I don't know. I think in the biological sciences, you're constantly move and shape and flowing with all different things it's it's not that easy yeah yeah i
1: think it's it's the sign of a accurate data set when you've got a participant that has data that goes the wrong way
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah. which is very common in our field why did that person do that i have no idea (laughs) like they got more stressed and they got more sleep what
1: (laughs) just to prove that we haven't fudged the data yeah
0: yeah why is that guy like that
1: the fuck
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's always the case yeah so recently Jen you've been getting into an area um, that's obviously been seen as a bit of taboo in our culture in the western society uh, and we've heard the old catch cry over the years that drugs are bad in South Park uh, okay but you've been actually looking at this um, in terms of a clinical trial and I suppose it's worth saying that there is a big culture shift over the last 10 years around looking at drugs and research. Now, we can talk about drugs on the scale from like tobacco, caffeine, alcohol, but what we're talking about here is like things like marijuana, (laughs) acid, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, ayahuasca, which has been predominantly led by, I think, the John Hopkins group in America, um, and this other group, MAPS, as well, in America, really sort of advocating and doing a lot of research around the positive benefits of how these things can be used for alleviating things like anxiety, depression, We've seen studies where um, soldiers with PTSD have been treated with MDMA plus um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think with, I think it was MDMA, cognitive behavioral therapy, and over five sessions, PTSD was virtually eliminated in most of the soldiers, which was quite interesting. And now we see a kind of a renaissance, so to speak, or a cultural revolution similar to the 60s where we see lots of people now doing DMT, ayahuasca, psilocybin, all these psychedelics looking for these mystical experiences which could be related to um, people losing faith in God and religion. As Nietzsche said, God is dead, but maybe drugs are alive. Maybe people are going more towards them for that reason or maybe it's from people talking about them on podcasts or it's also the... Um, The emergence of a whole business in South America around this. A lot of people go just to South America to have these experiences, these retreats set up that you can go to, you know, five-star retreats to get off your head and do DMT. But one of the things we've seen here in Australia over the last couple of years um, has been probably a very slow start into it, and probably rightly so since the 60s. And one of the things that people have been looking at is CBD, which is the non-psychoactive component of marijuana. I get this right, please correct me if I do. Uh, so, THC is the psychoactive, and CBD is the non-psychoactive. And it's kind of put forward that CBD can have a lot of positive effects on people without being off your head, so to speak, for pain, anxiety, depression, and sleep. So that's that's been kind of proposed, um, and and mainly because a lot of people who smoke a lot of marijuana have said uh, it helps their sleep, but in actual fact, that's not true. So, you've kind of got into this research, and you've done this massive clinical trial um, that's been published in what was it? The God journal of uh, sleep. Sleep in, in the journal of sleep. Yeah. So it's a very it is a top sleep journal, as it suggests. So probably, where w- would be a good place to start on this paper, Jen?
1: Yeah. So it's. Um, I, I, I look. I agree. You know, with everything you said, there's definitely an increase in the um, interest in using these different drugs um for treating different ailments um in australia cannabis was legalized for medicinal use i think from memory it's 2017 don't quote me on that um that was it medicinal use with a doctor's prescription yeah it might have been 2016 yeah with a doctor's prescription yeah, yeah. not
0: legalized for just to go in and Buy whatever you like, like in Denver and Colorado. It's not like that. Yes, no,
1: it's not like that. You need a doctor's prescription and it's actually Schedule 8. So it's considered the same level uh, as an opioid uh, or, you know, morphine. You know, it's tightly regulated. You know, you need approval from the Department of Health to take it. Um, And, yeah, so we... Um, we actually worked with a Perth-based company. They were called Zelda Therapeutics. They're now called Zalira Therapeutics. And they, they actually came to us with the proposal that they wanted to investigate a, a product that they had developed. Um, so we, we didn't have anything to do with the development of the formulation of the product, but they wanted to test the efficacy of it for treating or improving sleep. So we worked with them to develop a protocol to... Um, or, you know, they realize that really it's it's not so much sort of, I guess, just helping anybody, you know, improve their sleep. It's actually for treating people with insomnia. Um, so it's not, you know, someone who's just had, a you know, the occasional bad night's sleep. It's someone who's got an ongoing problem where they, they feel like they're not sleeping enough.
0: So for the purpose of just definitions, because some people say, oh, I've got woeful insomnia, I slept bad last night, like you said. Or every Saturday night after I go drinking, I have insomnia. <laughs> like, what what is the definition of insomnia?
1: So there's a couple of different definitions, but um, you don't have to give us the perfect clinical.
0: But maybe just in your own words, yeah. like, how, how would you describe
1: so, it? So the the it's people who have a self-reported difficulty in falling asleep, staying asleep, or waking up too early, and typically the definition will include. Um, a few quantitative measures such as it needs the problem needs to have lasted for three months so it's chronic insomnia and it needs to they need to either take more than 30 minutes to fall asleep or they're awake for more than 30 minutes during the night on at least three nights per week so they're the that's most of the the most of the definitions will include that and they might also include some kind of daytime functional impairment because sometimes people will fit that criteria but it doesn't bother them at all they can just get along with life yeah um so like, like you Jen <laughs> yeah <laughs> sometimes sometimes <laughs> when, when I walked
0: in here today Jen goes right, this podcast better be quick because I'm really tired I didn't sleep well last night quite ironic
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah about three hours of sleep yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll ask my husband and my kids later whether I've coped with the three hours of sleep. Get into bed, <laughs> shut up! Has it affected my daytime <laughs> functioning? Mm.
0: <laughs> what do you mean go to bed, mum? It's only 5pm. Shut up, I'm sick of
1: you all. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Z- Z- Zalera were keen, they, they had um, come up with a formulation, which is... Uh, uh, th, contains thc and it's 20 milligrams per mil of thc two milligrams per mil of cbn and one milligram per mil of cbd what's cbn it's cannabinol. so thc is tetrahydrocannabidiol and or i think um, americans will say uh canna how do they say it um who
0: cares what Americans say?
1: Yeah, that way they say cannabis is different. Cannabinoid. Cannabinoid. So you've got CBN. Cannabinoid. CB, cannabinoid, that's cannabinoid. That's
0: cannabinoid. C- CBD, CBN, and THC.
1: Yeah. That's what's in yeah. it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So the CBN and the CBD are both considered to be the non psychoactive yeah. components. And it's thought that, um, in, and THC is psycho, you know, has the psychoactive element. Obviously, it's dose dependent. Yeah. And you know, as we've talked about, there's lots of inter- intra or inter-individual variability in, you know, how people will respond. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, with the CBN and the CBD, it's thought potentially to balance out or remove some of that psychoactive element of the THC. And obviously, you know, it. it, it I think people might be a bit confused and they might think, oh, well, the THC, it's psychoactive, you know, that's going to keep people awake and make them want to party or, you know eat for <laughs> eat all night or yeah, yeah. but um, you know that's why the CBN and the, and the CBD are in there so that's yeah they, they developed this formulation and, and we helped them with the protocol and then and then carried out this the study so
0: so this was all put into like what like a tablet form
1: it was in an oil, an oil.
0: Um, yeah so, so it was consumed orally
1: yes it was consumed orally so people uh, would have either half a meal or a full mill of oil and it would be they would sort of you know it was in a syringe so they they'll package it was packaged individual, in individual syringes yeah yeah And they'd have to squirt it under their tongue and just leave it there for a, about a minute about an hour before they were gonna they wanted to go to sleep
0: and so with the level of THC that's in this is there any potential that somebody could be feeling you know a bit Ooh. Yeah, everybody's th- talking about me a bit paranoid or a bit a bit high so to speak
1: yeah look there is um, and that's something that we were cautious of uh, initially um, that so we we had people come in and they did a sense of what we called a sensitivity test Okay. To see whether they were going to react. So there's
0: there's a bomb. Hit that four times. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a bag of popcorn. Oh yeah, he had four hits and he had the full bag of popcorn. Very sensitive. <laughs> so no one,
1: interestingly, no one reported. Getting the munchies, so... Really? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, we've got no. we to go to Broadway Pizza after all. <laughs> <Yeah. rod. laughs> we did lock the fridge, but <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, that we were conscious that people might have hallucinations, which m- might be unpleasant. And it was actually um, reported in uh, two people. They, One person had auditory hallucinations and one person Jen, had Jen, visual hallucinations. Jen, Jen, Jen. Jen, 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 Jen. Come and
0: you! What's that? It's a big dog. <laughs> and I was whilst to were here in the laboratory.
1: That was no. That was during the that when they were in the st- in the in the study. So if um, they'd had hallucinations that were significant, then we probably wouldn't have let them proceed in if they if, during the sensitivity yeah, yeah. testing. Well, oh, had just they just joined like the sensitivity test. They had the hallucinations. If, if no, no, they didn't. Oh. But if they did, then we probably wouldn't have let it's them proceed. An yeah. yeah, and also it, it was mainly for. Um, to see whether they were going to have any kind of anaphylactic reaction yeah, to yeah, yeah. To, yeah. to the product, which fortunately it would—it's rare, but it can happen. So we needed to be careful that that wasn't going to happen when people were yeah. at home. But yeah, so people came in. Um, we we screened a lot a lot of people. It was—I mean—we were looking for people with insomnia, and it's a chronic problem. I'm fifteen percent of the population yeah, yeah. have chronic insomnia. It's a, it's a big problem. And the current options for treating insomnia are pretty limited. Um, it, it's, it's CBTI, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Insomnia, is fantastic. It's demonstrated to be really effective, but it's really hard to access. Uh, I mean, that's if you get referred to mm. someone who can do it and who can do it properly.
0: Um,
1: it's hard to access and it can take a while you know, for it to... To work,
0: yeah, take weeks or weeks or months yeah. for
1: people to get on the right path. Yeah, yeah. So, and obviously, you know, you need to be the right type of individual to to buy into it, and to you know be motivated motivated enough to to participate in it. Um, you know, and uh, I mean, we all know that there are different uh, hypnotics available. You know, you can go to your GP and you say you have trouble sleeping, and you know, we know the evidence is that ninety five percent of the time people will walk out with a prescription for a for a sleeping pill
0: so but we also know as well that that medication basically is efi- has efficacy for like 10 10 days to 14 days yeah and at long-term studies that show that people who drink chamomile tea have better outcomes so it can be more about the, the sort of sleep hygiene and the habitual nature towards yeah. what their sleep habits are as opposed to you know just popping a pill every night
1: exactly yeah yeah and you know the, the long-term side effects of taking medication can you know can be bad mm. there you know there are some pretty bad ones so um it's yeah you know there needs to be another option uh, and a lot of people don't want to be taking pills at all if you know if ever you know like so some people like her. <laughs> yeah so uh, yeah some some people don't some care people i mean the out. number of yeah, I remember speaking when we were screening i remember speaking to this 92 year old man who you know didn't meet the the age criteria of eligibility um that he was like oh i've been having a you know one and a half benzodiazepines every night and you know for the last 15 years and it's fine i'm okay with that like keep him, didn't alive, bother keep him. him. alive. yeah you know he was <laughs> interested in learning what else you know would be available yeah, but yeah, yeah. you know he, uh, and it would, it would have been actually hard to take him off that to be honest you know people
0: yeah,
1: yeah. they do get they build up a tolerance to it benzodiazepines benzodiazepines, a lot of people have
0: a lot of problems getting off those yeah Yeah. really yeah so i think i think i read recently that some of the two hardest things to get off of was benzos and alcohol that it's easier to get off heroin interesting yeah so more people die coming off alcohol and benzodiazepines than they do coming off heroin wow so heroin is basically like having a bad flu yeah coming off it but alcohol loads of people die trying to detox on their (laughs) own especially yeah i'd better not
1: stop then (laughs)
0: <laughs> there you go that's a message from your local scientist <laughs> cardiac rehabilitation expert jen walsh go out and keep getting pissed and if you want then you can smoke weed too anyway let's carry on with the study what time is it it's not even it's 11 o'clock in the morning that's that's where our head is at oh, no it's worry. midday somewhere it's midday somewhere yeah i love that yeah it's drinking time so uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah, so we 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 had no trouble getting uh, volunteers. Um, there were lots of people that called us out, um, and it, they we didn't advert when we advertised for people. We didn't tell them that it was a cannabis product. Obviously, when they called us, we we informed them yeah, that yeah. it was. And interestingly, for the most part, it wasn't. That wasn't a showstopper for people. They they were probably yeah they were quite open to it.
0: I was going to ask you: Did you get a lot of kind of you know? Oh, drugs are bad, I'm not doing that. I can't believe you're giving people drugs.
1: No, there was n- nothing, like, you know, that aggressive. But, the, you know, there were certainly people that were like, oh, no, that's not for me. Thank you, thank you but no, thank you. <laughs> there were also people that, you know, they couldn't have it because they were an emergency physician and yeah, they yeah. needed to be on call and they, when they wake up, they need to be... Well, that was a question know. actually Have
0: for you today was about, like, because you have shown, and we're jumping ahead to the results here, you have shown basically in this study that this does help with insomnia, which we'll talk yeah. about in a moment. But what about those people that work in industries like mining, oil and gas, um, you know, transportation, wherever it might be, construction, where there is randomized drug testing? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's drug testing to get in to get your job. There's randomized drug and alcohol testing as well that occurs, or even with athletes as well. So would this, would this product basically... Be uh, a showstopper for those people would it basically show up and flag like they no marijuana? It would. Yep, yeah,
1: it would. And th- this is the problem: is that the legislation needs to change, yeah, and our yeah. understanding and acceptance of the use of it and and how it works needs n- needs to change. Like, well, we need to improve our understanding, but people need to accept that. Yep, it it will flag, but if you're taking it at such a low dose, and it is a low dose. I mean the most people were taking uh, ten milligrams of THC, so that was sort of the half or single dose. But people had yeah. the option to increase to the double dose, and you know, that's like, you know, it's it's a smoke, a, a puff on a joint. Like it's not even a, a full joint, really. You know, maybe twenty milligrams of a full joint might have twenty milligrams of, of THC in it.
0: Do, do you know if someone had this product? Let's say they took it once. Would there be like a kind of a washout time? Would the test negative within a day, two days, three days? Depends. It's depends a mind field. It's absolutely So a bit like with caffeine, it could be all different kind of response. It rest. also
1: depends how you're measuring it. So you can measure it in the... Saliva, the blood. Saliva, blood, urine. And uh, it turns out that the WA police measure the saliva. Um, however, <laughs> if you're not uh, responsive then they will take a – so say you have a traffic accident and, and you can't provide us a live sample, they will – I was going to say, if you're not responsive, sample. you shouldn't be driving but every an yeah. accident. I was like, what?
0: Why <laughs> oh, you not responsible? Excuse me, sir, can you give me a sample of saliva? Huh? <laughs> He's not responsive. It's actually a crash, okay.
1: Yeah, if they're in a, an accident, then you know, they might do a blood sample, um, but they don't do urine tests. Um, and, uh, yeah, so and, – and all of them are measured – uh, depending upon how you've taken it so have you smoked it have you vaped it have you uh, consumed it in a brownie have you consumed it in an oil um, they all will metabolise differently they will all be detected differently you know? so apparently the, um, or the data indicates that if you smoke cannabis it's more likely to stay in the saliva than if you take it orally for example um, so, you know, it depends. But, yeah, yeah look, yeah. The, the bottom line is, I mean, if we're doing urine drug screens, because most worksite and sports, you know, random drug tests would be urine. Um, gone to, you... to
0: saliva now, a lot of them, Jen. Have they? Yeah, a lot of them have gone to saliva. Yeah, because okay. it's quicker, it's easier, it's less invasive. Um, and particularly because at a time, like, a lot of people get stage fright, men and women, but, like, you know, yeah. trying to, you know, people... Yeah. People can't piss on demand. Yeah. yeah, I can but other people can't, and yeah. I've seen people sit Probably there. For, you're
1: dehydrated. People you... sit
0: there, especially when I walked up in the Pilbara region. When it was very hot. I seen I've seen people sit there for three hours, and I'm like, oh my god, like I can just piss on demand. But these guys, you know, I think that's from being in the military. You're just like, yeah, whatever. I don't care if I'm naked or whatever's going. On. I'm just a, a meat a meat vehicle walking around. But other people are, and then on top of that, other people have sat there for six, seven hours, not being able to do it in front of anybody else. Yeah. So it's quite it is quite invasive and quite. I don't know embarrassing i think for some people and it's not it's not a nice process yeah. so that's why a lot of them have gone to the saliva and they can just do more people get more data and then if people flag as potentially i don't think it's a positive or a, um, a negative it's more like a negative or a not negative and then from that then it leads to a urine or blood test further on to to show to quantify, yeah, to quantify what is i think that's yeah, similar to what the or, police are doing yeah or,
1: or validate it with a a more sensitive qualitative analysis yeah 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 but yeah i and the other thing is i'm, I'm not sure I, I i'm pretty certain that if they're doing a urine test and um, you know anecdotally i hear that they're you know testing people out to you know the 30 days you know they might be able to measure you know detect cannabis they're not detecting thc at that time point it, they wouldn't yeah, be able yeah. the thc would have gone what before we, it is cbd it's the metabolites of the thc okay. they don't they wouldn't be looking for CBD.
0: Okay, it's the metabolites of the THC. It's a metabolites of the THC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: So, and and that can take a long time. So that's what te- comes out to a month, you know, or, or yeah. more if you're if you're a chronic user.
0: So obviously, we're not going to change legislation in this conversation, but I am interested in terms of impairment. So that's the That's, thing. that's, that's, that's what I'm interested in. So how, how long would people be impaired?
1: Uh, yeah, great question. <laughs> how long is a piece of string? Six inches. Um, <laughs> Um, see I have one in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about doing that because
0: I was a hundred pieces of string. I was thinking I'm going to carry on a piece of string that's exactly six inches. I've got six inches. I don't see what people say. Um, yeah. So uh,
1: I think most studies. It depends how you're measuring impairment as well. But most studies that you know are available at the moment suggest that um, impairment will be up to perhaps about six hours six to ten hours after having, you might be impaired for that amount of time.
0: From this product? No, the, no this product
1: hasn't been, the product we use okay. hasn't been tested, but just from smoking cannabis or vaping it.
0: It's an interesting question, so isn't it, because we, we allow in our culture for people, when you look at the, the history of caffeine, right, originally used by the Egyptians, and the, and the reason I'm using caffeine and alcohol here is because it's widely consumed and legalized and people are like, oh, it's cool, it's, it's legal, but it's still a drug. Caffeine, one of the oldest one used by the Egyptians originally, and then in the in the in the workplace, we have a coffee break mid morning, you know, to basically provide that caffeine here. Jen's laughing because she just drank some Pepsi. <laughs> 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 I've got a friend who when he drinks Pepsi Max; he goes off the planet, like he just goes crazy. It's it's like he's doing cocaine. Um, and so basically, getting that caffeine hit mid morning to then you know for people to be more productive. So we are we are using caffeine in our. Society mm-hmm. for this, you know, effect. And we've seen it in some of the work that we've done with athletes around caffeine for that ergogenic effect, the timing of it and so on, the differences of it. Um, we see people even using it recreationally, like a social activity, let's catch up for a coffee. The same with alcohol. Some people go on a Friday night and go, I'm just going out to get fucking blitzed because I've had a terrible week and I just want to get numb. And then we see people go, let's have a beer and have a chat. And we see it being used in all these different ways. But marijuana is basically I feel like an old man saying marijuana and marijuana basically has been outlawed or prohibited for many years and then we never seem to have the conversation about the impairment part of it it's all about oh drugs are bad and you know if someone smokes pot then like you know their life falls apart I'm sure we all know plenty of people who drink a lot of alcohol and their lives have fallen apart and then people go, oh yeah, but from a daytime functioning perspective, you see people from a safety perspective. If they're if they've been smoking weed the next day, they're not all there. I see people that drink every night that are still not there. Yeah. Long term alcohol use to me is more is probably more dangerous than someone yeah, smoking weed. From my ob- from my own observation of people, yeah. lo- people alcoholics, daytime functioning is just.
1: I. I've, crazy. I'm pretty sure alcohol is the the most dangerous drug what is it that it causes the most harm worldwide you yeah. know that i and pr- probably largely because it's very accessible and it's and it's it's illegal um, and not
0: just harm to people individually in terms of like cirrhosis of the liver and all these things it's all the social domestic violence breakups knock-on effects to families yeah. Yeah. people losing their jobs spiraling down like yeah. from from like middle class right down to like
1: yeah. So it's not just you know performance at work or driving performance yeah, yeah. in car accidents and whatnot. You're exactly right. It's got it's got f- far more broad-reaching you know, implications. Yeah. No. The thing is, I mean, I think everyone who is working in with medicinal cannabis and you know looking at I guess translating you know into health applications, you know, we see that this measurement performance driving problem is a massive problem Mm. because you know these people legally weren't able to drive while they were in our trial because the if they had a, a test which detected the thc in their saliva then you know they could be sprung for that um but we all have no doubt that their performance was not impaired the next day and none of them reported impaired performance. Obviously, that would be a you know subjective yeah, report. Yeah, yeah. We weren't measuring that. We're looking to do a study where we will measure that with different cannabis products. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there is the issue that, I, that if people did wake up during the night and they needed to drive, would they be able to? Perhaps not. Perhaps they would have had impaired performance. Same with alcohol. If you the wake the up four o'clock in the morning exactly. after having a skin full of wine the night before. And it's the same with having their tramadol. If yeah, they've yeah, yeah. got pain yeah. to having an opioid, you know, their yeah. performance is impaired. It's, it's, we just have the problem that driving with any THC or going to work with any THC in your system is illegal. Mm. Um, it's a, so it's a carryover from the fact that it was outlawed. And unfortunately, our road traffic laws haven't caught up. But, I mean, I would argue that the people in our trial with insomnia who had uh, significant um, daytime functioning, you know, or poor functioning because of their insomnia, if they're getting a better night's sleep, then their performance the next day... It's yeah, going yeah, to be better. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, going to exactly. be
0: improved. Yeah. So it's actually, it overall, if we look at overall performance, it's going to be improved.
1: Exactly, yeah. yeah.
0: So, Jen, when you brought these people in, how many people did you have in the study? There
1: was 24 who started, yeah.
0: 24 that started the study. And you brought them in here to the lab doing PSG, which is like the gold standard. You can't get any better than that. Yeah. And then you administered, you obviously asked them, you looked at case history, insomnia questions, you determined whether they had real insomnia and quantified a baseline. Yeah. Then what happened? Did you give it to them over like one night, two nights, three nights? How did that work?
1: Yeah, so we, we took people, our primary outcome measure was well, there was two there was safety of taking the, the product, and the second one was uh, the insomnia severity index. So that is a, a recognised um, global scale of insomnia symptoms, or, yeah. and it's it's a subjective scale. Um, so most people would think, well why would you use a subjective measure as your primary outcome measure? insomnia is a subjective disorder so you, you know if I measure you measure your sleep in the lab and see that you only sleep for four hours a night or it takes you three hours you know it takes you an hour to fall asleep or maybe you fall asleep quite quickly but you're awake for an hour during the night yeah. you would meet the definition of you know that quantitative definition that I was telling you about before but, I can't tell you that you've got insomnia it needs to be you saying it's my sleep is a problem so and the insomnia severity index basically is you know a subjective measure of how severe their insomnia symptoms are so yeah we we brought people in they um we we obviously measured their insomnia severity index um as well as a, a few other measures of quality of life and and um anxiety and depression and things like that and then um they we did a they went away for a couple of weeks and they wore an actigraph so uh, and it was a it was it was actigraphy and it was the actigraph brand brand yeah and uh they (laughs) so it measured their their sleep at home and they also had a sleep diary so we had a subjective measure of sleep for for two weeks and then we had the two-week measure of sleep with the actigraph and then we had the, on the 14th night they came in and they had a psg here and so we measured their sleep you know with our you know gold standard so the psg was at the end not the it start was at the end. Okay, at the yeah end. that that psg so at baseline that then identified whether or not they had other sleep disorders so we could have done one at the start uh, but that would have meant another PSG, and you know they're not easy to do, and they're not cheap to do. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we just did the one, um, and that from that we identified. I think I think we started with something like 37 people who, you know, sort of did that base, started the baseline phase, and 12 people were picked up to have another sleep disorder.
0: So they were excluded then. They were
1: excluded. Yeah. 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 Just out of interest,
0: what kind of sleep disorders Pre- were
1: predominantly obstructive sleep apnea. Okay. Yeah, we had a couple with uh, restless, oh sorry, periodic leg movement, limb movement, and yeah, okay. Yeah, and then, uh, then they so they did that two weeks. the The morning after that first PSG, that's when they did their sensitivity test. So we gave them a little bit of the active medication mixed with the placebo as well. So there was a placebo. This was a double blind, randomised. Placebo-controlled crossover. So they didn't know what they were taking. So they didn't know what they were and taking. And you didn't know what they were taking. We had no idea. So they they all packaged the same way, and they were just coded differently. And the product itself, the placebo was manufactured from the same cannabis plant which the the active product was manufactured, but it had the cannabinoids removed. So it it was made to look, smell, and taste Steel, yeah, the, the same, same yeah. as the
0: active product. So if I'm getting this right, just so I know, it's clear in my head. They did the self-reported stuff the diary the actigraphy then did the psg so that was the baseline yeah and then they did the psg and then after the psg then you started ministering.
1: well they had the sensitivity just to see if they were going to react and then they went away for a week yeah had a washout because they'd had a little bit of the active product okay. so we wanted them to have a washout and then they came. We we gave them the, the actigraphy and the diary and everything again for another two weeks. And and then they were also taking at that time. They were randomised to you know which whichever which treatment. One. But this arm all happened
0: post PSG. That
1: happened post PSG. And then on the fourteenth night of of that phase, they then had another PSG, and then they had another week washout. And then they were swapped over, crossed over oh, to the yeah, opposite yeah. arm, and then had a, did two weeks again and had another PSG, Jesus, so there really were three long. psgs yeah so it was six weeks of you know it, it that's, a yeah, that's a lot of data that's a lot of data, data. Yeah, that is lot a lot yeah yeah um and yeah obviously you know on the 14th night they had uh, simultaneous sleep diary actigraphy and, and psg
0: wow yeah. Did you do the ISI at, any, at all those time and points as ISI well? And
1: the ISI was done at all those time points, exactly. That's a, that's so, a lot of data. Yeah. Now, people, so, people
0: might think, oh, 24 people for like six weeks, not that much. But in the sleep world, that is a lot of people for that type of study yeah. using PSG three times. Generally, in those studies, you get PSG for one night and like 10 people. And that's a study of itself and can be published in sleep. Yeah. But you had 24 people, as your final data set, six weeks of actigraphy measures. And there's about eight measures that comes out of those actigraphs. From sleep duration to how much time you walk up, which is all an objective measure, which then can be correlated against the ISI. So even if they said, "Oh, I'm a really bad sleeper," you can verify that or prove or disprove it with that stuff in the field or in the lab as well. Like it's that's that's such a lot of yeah, it's very expensive as well. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot of money, a lot of time. It's
1: a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we had one person withdraw, so there's it was only twenty three. Oh, twenty three. <laughs> then okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it is. It's a lot of data. Um, and, yeah, it, and as you say, like, you know, with the PSG, it's it's really, you know, it is gold standard. Now, PSG is not actually the best way... For insomnia. ...to yeah, measure yeah. sleep in people with insomnia yeah. because it is, as, as much as we, you know, we recognise that it's the gold standard measure of sleep, um, insomnia research and insom- a lot of insomnia research will include PSG... Um, particularly pharmaceutical trials Um, it's not the best way because it's a single night it's in a lab you're connected to wires and Mm. you're doing all this in someone who reports that they don't sleep well the other thing interestingly with insomnia is that people can have this paradoxical good sleep when they go and sleep in a different environment so they might actually sleep well in a lab despite having all the wires on but you know there's no way of knowing you know, yeah. who's who's sleeping, you know, whether they're sleeping better or not. I mean, were, you know, we, we sort of it took a little bit of a, a a straw poll, you know, from people asking them, how did you sleep? But, um, yeah, and some people did say, oh, gee, I hope I get in because, you know, I, th- I feel like I had the best sleep of my life, yeah, uh, which I, is really I, interesting.
0: I, I had a subset of guys here one night and um, had some vacancy in the lab, so we brought in a few other people to play around with some data and one of the guys actually was training for a long distance run and he came in and he just said I because he came in around six and I said when do you want to go to bed and he goes I'm gonna eat this and I'm going to bed at seven and he goes I thought he wouldn't but he'd been away for like nine days working wired him up he got into bed he slept for ten and a half hours he didn't move crazy, all night like he crazy. just basically was just like poof, zonked. It was probably a bad night to do with the PSG, and he was going, man, that's probably the best sleep I had in about two or three weeks. So exactly that, because he'd been away yeah. in a fly on fly-out environment, working long days, being kind of stressed. So now he was home for I think seven days, and he was like just out for the count. It was like that big reset for him. Well, yeah.
1: if he was sleep deprived, he would have been more likely to have OSA. So yeah, so he, it's he, a good way to. to he, did, he didn't have
0: anything, but he had a lot yeah. of REM at the start of the night, which obviously showed mm-hmm. he was you yeah. know being sleep deprived or having that REM yeah. rebound. You know yeah. So with this um so we so the double crossover so obviously you're saying they had it like the the cbd infused product thc product for a couple of weeks then had the washout went over to their arm didn't know which they were on um so overall after you collected all that data what was the what was the main kind of finding summarized from in the in the paper
1: so the main finding was the isi so as you know that was our primary outcome measure of effectiveness i guess um, uh, it, it improved in people when they were taking the the Zalera medication um in everybody or just for the whole group the, on average for the whole group so it wasn't everybody
0: wasn't everybody no yeah and with the isi i think the scale is up to 21 is it it is yeah so, on average, how many points did it go down or percentage wise did it reduce for so
1: people? So, we were looking to see a. Uh, there's different sort of um, uh, values that are considered clinically significant. Yeah. We we used the value of six and it didn't quite meet that. It was 5.8 that it reduced on average, 5.8 uh, relative to um, placebo and baseline.
0: So, it went down by 5.8. That's a big jump it is big that's a massive jump yeah yeah that's that's a really big jump and what about sleep duration for those people did that increase as well
1: yep so the self-reported measures of uh, sleep duration um what is yeah so we had a self-reported total sleep time that improved um, a self-reported sleep onset latency decreased. So that was a, that's a time it takes people to fall, fall asleep, asleep. Yeah. at the start of the night when they turn the light off and they try and fall asleep. So that improved. So this is from their diary. There was also a measure of um, how rested they felt in the morning when they woke up mm. and that improved and then their measure of sleep quality, which was just a Likert scale. So those two yeah, were just yeah. Likert scales. And So basically all the self-reported measures improved. Uh, relative to when they were taking placebo, um, the actigraphy sleep latency uh, wasn't didn't change, um, but we know that sleep latency with actigraphy is a little bit. Oh, it's bit, very it's, wobbly. It's it's, it's, it's wobbly it's and it's w- w- yeah. quite dependent upon the way you analyse the data. So um,
0: now, if I'm if I'm correct with the actigraph device, the sleep onset latency is actually self-reported. Um, it's not an automated algorithm.
1: There is an automated algorithm that you can run through it, but we use the diaries to okay. to anchor the lights out.
0: Lights out, yeah. And it's that, so it's the time between lights out or the time they want to initiate sleep and the time they first fell asleep. Yeah, that's the sleep onset latency, that that delta.
1: Yeah, we we actually used it was the uh, there's a, a paper Boyne, the yep. first author Boyne, we used that method, which is it you, you put in that. Uh, the diary self-reported lights out and then it looks for I can't remember a certain number of epochs that have X you know um, less than activity count of 500 or something like that and it looks for that
0: as the first and onset of sleep yeah because yeah. yeah. it's not technically an epoch like PSG it's more like an activity count Exactly. and once it's below a certain threshold that's yeah take okay yeah. all right yeah. and what was the sleep onset latency before and what was it afterwards
1: so the actigraphy yeah 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 um, it was so this is where we know that it's a little bit spurious because it was 4.7 minutes basically at baseline, 4.8 yeah. with uh, when taking the medication and 5.2 minutes when um, taking placebo. So they are they're low sleep latencies for anyone. But what about when they are in the lab? Though? Yeah, when they're in the lab for the PSG, it was... Uh, 25 minutes when they were taking the active medication and the same when they were taking the placebo. So it actually didn't, we didn't see a difference in yeah. the lab and we didn't see a difference in the lab for any of the sleep measures.
0: So this is, this is interesting because you're saying earlier on, I'm not going to you're saying, <laughs> but from the literature and from the, what we discussed earlier on, sleep, insomnia was falling asleep, staying asleep and getting up early. But if they're falling asleep in less than 30 minutes, there's not really any issue with insomnia falling asleep. Now, if PSG is the gold standard, Obviously, it's bad for measuring insomnia, but it's actually pretty good at measuring sleep onset latency Yeah, because you've got someone awake, and it's the first epoch using PSG of sleep. So it's pretty easy to define it. And it, oh, we we probably sit here and argue about that that, that pain of, any, or that epoch is not sleep. No, this is, but you're talking about maybe 10 seconds it's or 30 like, seconds you're, difference, you're, you're right? Wouldn't, wouldn't, be wouldn't, wouldn't, great, wouldn't be that Wouldn't be that much. You're not talking about like a difference of 10 minutes if we're scoring sleep. Um, so really, from the PSG, pretty good sleep, pretty good... Not bad. Yeah. Twenty-five minutes is not too bad. Ideally, it it's should be somewhere between ten and twenty, yeah. up to thirty. Over over thirty, then we're starting again to get into the the, into the, the yeah. red periods. But it's not like they're staying out. There. It's not the extent of an hours. Standard deviation
1: to was twenty-two minutes, though. So and, okay, or, and when it. they were taking placebo, it was fifty-two minutes. Oh, so there were okay, some yeah, yeah. people that were taking a lot an hour time. or more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the thing with insomnia: is that there, there are some people that uh, have difficulty falling asleep
0: and others
1: will fall asleep absolutely fine but then wake up and will then wake up and this is all averaged out so we need to do a bit more digging into individual data data. yeah Yeah, to have a look at those people that you know have different types of insomnia Yeah, yeah unfortunately we probably don't have sufficient numbers to make you know a big big call on Mm. it but you know it's 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 something that we're looking at yeah yeah. and i think what's
0: interesting there as well is that the fact that we just you've just shown there as well how bad people are at self-reporting their own sleep in terms of like sleep latency so, because well, they're, they're off by 20 minutes.
1: Yeah, so the um, – well, no, the PSG sleep latency was 25 minutes um, and then the self-reported sleep lat- – this is for when they're taking the active medication. The self-reported sleep latency was 38 minutes and the actigraphy was five minutes effectively. Oh. Um, bear in mind, though, that the self-reported – so the diary and the actigraphy data was based on the, the t- whole two-week period Was the PSG was just a single night. That's right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're currently actually analysing – just that single night, what? how different does the diary on that one and night, the actigraphy yeah, yeah. and yeah. the PSG, how different do they look?
0: So I did that on a, on a paper a few years ago looking at PSG versus the actigraph device versus the ready band, which is an o- automated algorithm. And we were interested in looking at the automated algorithm versus the traditional actigraphy one against PSG. And we found on the first night in the lab, people had PSG and those two devices on and it was a bit like Goldilocks. Actigraphy was like, self-reported measure was like five minutes or something like so way underestimated and yeah. then the psg the ready band was like 45 minutes for sleep latency and the psg then was right slap bang in the middle of the two of them yeah so it's really interesting you get these kind of two different versions of uh from the real truth if yeah. You know, call yeah. It that, yeah you know yeah so it's you're kind of going to do the same kind of thing yeah. there looking at the actograph versus actograph and self-reported versus the psg on that one night that's, that's right yeah, on yeah. that
1: one night yeah the other the other thing that we did find was that the um so obviously the self-reported measures over the the whole two-week period indicated that the that the people were sleeping better with the active medication but um the actigraphy data also other than the sleep latency so their their way so so the time they spent awake during the night was was lower their total sleep time was higher and their sleep efficiency was greater when they were taking the active medication so as much as our PSG data didn't demonstrate a difference when they were taking the active medication over that single night, the, the two weeks that they spent at the whole two week period with, you know, the mm. objective measure, those objective measures of sleep that we've got from the actigraphy indicate that there was an improvement in sleep when they were taking the medication. So combined with the subjective measures yeah you yeah. know those objective measures you know it's pretty it's pretty exciting that you know potentially this has got some legs you know we need to do a little mm-hmm. bit more work it'd be great to be able to demonstrate in the lab um that you know it really does work but we probably need to to des- design the study a little bit differently to do that perhaps take people who um have you know, only, you know, insomnia that, you know, is... You know, they've got difficulty falling asleep at the start of the night and and looking just at those people versus, you know, people who have difficulty, you know, staying asleep. Or people who have, you know, quite significant insomnia. So we, yeah. um, we took people who would probably be considered to be sort of i guess mild to moderate in i mean they they had to be at least mild insomnia but we could take people with more severe insomnia
0: mm-hmm. i'm just trying as you're talking i'm just thinking about all the kind of because if insomnia would would sit in the group of what circadian rhythm disorders technically within the american academy of sleep medicine or is it in its own group i forget you're probably more fair with that than i am
1: no, so it wouldn't be circadian rhythm.
0: Does it sit within its own I group? I think it's,
1: it's, it's on its own, Its own yeah. group
0: of insomnia. Uh, how good are we, a scientists? <laughs> <I mean, very laughs> Let me just check could, that. You keep speaking, Ian. in. You fact check me there, Jen. <laughs> yeah, like I said, we'd never know the answers. But what I'm thinking about straight away as you're talking about this in terms of this group and other people with insomnia, now I'm starting to think about athletes where we see lots of data around sleep disturbances the night before a game or a competition Or even for some people after a game or a competition where, particularly in contact sports, where people have had their bell rung sort of (laughs) after a game, um, we see a lot of disturbances afterwards. And then the other one I'm thinking about is where we've published recently on travel fatigue and jet lag. We've had a systematic review and a consensus paper being part of a big group led by um, uh, Christoph van Rensburg in South Africa. And that's... That's shown as well how little stuff there is around managing those areas. I'm just thinking then again, could this be something that's used for jet lag? Not so much to combat jet lag, but to alleviate the symptoms of jet lag on arrival. And then could it be used also in shift work disorder? Because we found recently in that paper that I spoke about, it's been approved or uh, accepted for the Journal of Applied Er Ergonomics. Using shift work questionnaires, people have got a massive prevalence of risk Prevalence risk of shift work, like forty-something percent. I think it was forty-two percent. That's a real high number yeah. where people are really struggling. Yeah. You know, with this with shift work disorder, which yeah. could be obviously part of the organisational design of the rosters and so on. But there's all these kind of knock-on effects of, uh, in a positive way, if we can get around. I think some of the legislative frameworks, or they can be changed, to say, look, this is actually really good. We're not saying that people should go and get stoned. We're not saying that people are not advocating people smoke joints. Because we know that the more THC that you consume, it actually inhibits REM sleep, and long term, that's not good. So I'm not advocating that, but it just looks to me like this could be a massive disruptor in the pharmaceutical field. Number one, but two, a massive benefit to people who are struggling with these problems because sleep problems are getting worse in our society.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so there's so much you know that we um, don't know I mean you know this was a two week period of time what's a single night what's the benefit yeah, yeah. of a single night we're not sure but I mean I, I, I see it as you know, I'm, I'm still I, I still believe that for insomnia the the best treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy yeah 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 um, but you know the, as I said for those reasons before it's not always going to suit people and um, you know and, and like you know someone who's had a death in the family you know you don't you don't need to see a, a sleep psychologist, you know, to, to treat your insomnia due to that. You just need a, a quick stopgap, you know, for a, a week, maybe mm. even only a couple of nights to get you through and and get you over that, that gr- initial grief and, and get you back to sleeping properly. Um, and, you know, this is, is a potential solution for that. Um, but, yeah, obviously we don't have that evidence yet. And, and obviously we've got the, the legislative issues That we need to overcome, Uh, so it makes people feel a little bit safer if they they are out driving during the day. And yeah, they're not going to get in trouble for it. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. interesting.
0: I spoke to a guy called David O'Shottnessy this week. Although he's Irish, name he is Australian, (laughs) and was like, oh, I think my name is Irish. I'm like, yeah, no shit. (laughs) And David is an anthropologist. Uh, Very interesting character. He spoke recently at ECU on a Sunday afternoon talking about some of his PhD research. David did an undergraduate degree in computer science, postgrad in psychology and a PhD in anthropology and now doing a postdoc with Berkeley in the US but based here in Australia because of the COVID situation. But a lot of his PhD research was in South America working with um, local communities in Bolivia and I think in Peru and basically looking at the impact of things like ayahuasca and DMT and it's sort of in that culture it's very much about scene and setting and you know like it's a ritual and you might you know go through a kind of a fasting period for a few weeks or remove spices and fats and take away type of food or whatever you might go on this very minimalist diet and so you're kind of preparing your body for this so it's all that kind of about that scene and setting, and um, which is very important and I think again what you're kind of on a similar but different vein is articulating the fact that this is useful in this scene and setting as per the conditions of this study for long-term insomnia i nearly fell out the window um long-term insomnia but not for maybe an acute period of sleep loss or difficulty sleeping over one night and it's understanding exactly where this um therapy or pharmaceutical intervention fits and we still don't know where it fits but from this obviously it's promising for people with clinical insomnia and so with that is this gonna be, is, has this been approved now for use with those people? Um,
1: so it is, it's It's commercial, the product is commercially available um, in Australia and I think in the US, but definitely in Australia, it's called Xenovol, um, And it's not on, on the, um, it's not on approved uh, by the TGA yet. However, they are, the company are working to, to get a bit more data so they can have it approved. Um, but, yeah, people are able to access it through the what's called the special access scheme. Yeah. So they can go to a, a physician that prescribes, um, prescribes cannabis products. Uh, and the thing is most well, GPs, all GPs are allowed to do that now. And they just need to um, apply through the special access scheme for their patients to mm. have a, a cannabis products product. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I was speaking to someone last night whose son has autism, and you know, quite um, he's quite low functioning, uh, but you know, it, it's has significant impacts on on his son's sleep, but also his and his wife's sleep. Um, you know, he's saying that his son would regularly go to bed, go to sleep at four, five, six in the morning, and that's Whoa. a that's a, a nightly a nightly occurrence and you know we know that and you know he's not alone a lot of people with autism you know have sleep disturbances have insomnia um you know that's another application where you know a product potentially like this maybe with or without thc you know there might be other cannabinoids other formulations that might be beneficial um it could it could could help improve sleep you know there's
0: what what what's interesting about this though as well is i think as much as the research advances the education has to be a step ahead because when you discuss this in a logical aspect in a logical manner with people what's really interesting to talk about all the benefits of cbd all they're thinking is you're telling people to smoke dope right that's what they that's what they hear and you have to explain the difference between cbd and thc and then you talk about the research that's coming out or showing like what what i've saying around about ptsd if you look at the spectrum of drugs you know um all the way along from like let's we'll say marijuana right through to snorting coke right, or injecting heroin it's kind of a spectrum and they're all different and as michael pollan says um there's some there's some drugs he said that dissolve your ego. Uh, like taking DMT, and others then are ego enhancing, like snorting coke, right? <laughs> um, I know
1: lots of people that
0: snort coke. Let's <laughs> start a business. I got this great idea, Jen. We're yeah. never going to lose. Let's do this. <laughs> um, but my point was basically about when you talk about, especially with kids, about how it'll stop seizures and so on. All right, so you just want kids to be going around stoned out of their brains? Yeah. It's like whoa, whoa, back up. Yeah. Some people, when you speak to them, actually think that people are giving kids bongs at (laughs) night time you're like what the fuck are you talking about (laughs) who said anything about a bong you jump from zero to a hundred we're talking about like an oil or even being rubbed onto the body non-psychoactive yeah all of these things have helped
1: yeah exactly so people and people are looking at at those different modes of yeah those applications yeah yeah yeah. so i think the education needs to be like nearly a step ahead of
0: research and explaining this in a logical you know evidence-based fashion and showing pictures of a kid like maybe getting oil rubbed on them or taking drops, you know, because I'd nearly, if I was going to be educating people, as I'd say, and I'm not an educator in this area, I'd have a picture of a 14-year-old smoking a bong and then I'd have, that's what you think, but this is in reality what's yeah. happening on the other yeah. side.
1: Yeah, that's why, yeah, I mean, we the languaging is, is got to be right. Yeah. This is, a, the, we talk about this as a medication, it's yeah. a medication. It's not a recreational drug it's been used for medical purposes. Yeah. It's a pharmaceutical product. It's and it is it's important it's not marijuana.
0: It's not a way of getting off your head. No. Yeah. No.
1: I mean and the thing is it's at the moment it's very expensive. It's not a cheap way. There's a how, lot. How, how, much is, how much is it? There's a lot of cheaper ways to get it off your head. I actually don't know how expensive this product is, but I mean, just in general. Can you send um, me some tablets. <laughs> <laughs> just in general, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, the different. There's oh, there's a bunch of them available on the in the mar- on the market in Australia. Um, I would say probably upwards of thirty products, thirty different products, mm. and they're oh, I don't know. It, it'd be in the order of probably three hundred dollars a month for most people to treat whatever condition it is. But, I mean, I know people that um, have said, um, oh, I'd easily pay that because I'd be paying that on alcohol to get to sleep every
0: night. I was going to say, that's a, that's a, that's a, a decent amount anyway, so... Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, it, for, for a lot of people, they're prepared to pay that. It's, it's, you know, they see it as an investment in their health and they get, mm. you know, a, a positive... A positive benefit from it, and their you know their whole life just shifts. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I spoke to someone the other day who'd had insomnia for three nights. A you know a young school mum, and she said, "Oh my god, I've had the worst three nights sleep ever. I don't know how people do this all the time. Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine. I can't, I uh, can't function. You know, and this is it. People, people are like that all the time.
0: You know, I've discovered because I moved into a new house last year. Now that it's spring in this new house and I've got these beautiful trees around my house and that lovely willow tree on my verge. Oh, you have to rake up leaves. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Rake up leaves, the bane of my existence. Because we had that willow tree, tiny little leaves (laughs) all over the new lawn that we put down a few months ago. Oh,
1: you need the special vacuum. I got it.
0: I got it. I I went out and got a uh, Ryobi sort of uh, blower vac that sucks and blows. And my wife goes, why did you buy that? I said, you come out here and fucking rake up the leaves every week because I'm done with it. the big ones off the magnolia tree are fine you can just pick them up with your hand or rake them up They're little willow leaves no rake will get them nothing will get them it is a pain in the ass that is that is the biggest pain of my existence at the moment how privileged am I (laughs) I'm (laughs) battling with a willow tree but this willow tree might get burnt down Jen because I tell you why the last three nights the birds have gone crazy even now we can hear them outside here the birds have gone crazy obviously it's spring and they're chirping like crazy in the morning but there's one bird that's chirping all through the night, 3 a.m. 3 a.m. It was giving all
1: birth all the way
0: through, giving birth. I, I I got up to the night and I was like, my wife was away and I just shouted out the window, "I'm gonna burn down that tree!" Like a lunatic shouting out the window. I couldn't believe it. I had to put in the air plug, so. And
1: what time did the police arrive?
0: <laughs> that's another story, actually. I'll tell you about that off camera. But but he's basically this bird has been chirping. From half seven in the evening, or the where I right troop the next morning, and then when all the rest of the birds get by half five, they all join in with him. So he's no, like—he's he, gone to sleep. No, he's like—he's like the meth head up all night. <laughs> he's got a, shouting in the tree. so right,
1: he's got a circadian rhythm issue.
0: I, I imagine they all fly over and go, "What the fuck were you shouting about last night? We told you. That's why we went to the other tree. You're over here shouting like a lunatic. Get out of here." <laughs> and it's been three nights now in a row. So I'm—I'm I'm at the edge of my like. <laughs> yeah I drove out to the swim pool this morning at half five and I was like that tree's coming down if you keep this up
1: sorry no caffeine none of my <laughs> caffeine for you <laughs> <You're right. laughs>
0: so um, thanks for that Jen really appreciate you giving us an overview of that paper um, so that paper is called cool. if anybody's looking for it we'll put it in the show notes anyway but the title of that paper is uh, smoke bongs I mean treatment <laughs> Some. Oh, I love these long titles Treatment insomnia Symptoms with Medicinal Cannabis, a randomized crossover trial of the efficacy of a cannabinoid medicine compared with placebo. And there's about 10 authors on it. <laughs> I read a paper recently that had six subjects and 10 authors. And I was like, hmm, more authors than people on the study. <laughs> Get them publications up by the end of the year. <laughs> All right, so we'll put the, um, we'll put the uh, link to that in the, in the show notes uh so Jane, what's on the cards for you guys here at the uwa center for sleep science what's coming up how can people follow your work any courses they can do can they avail of um, any of your educational material are you available to come in and talk about drugs what's going on
1: <laughs> yeah so we are um, we're working on another trial looking at uh, the effects of a, a different cannabis product and another drug on obstructive sleep apnea, so that's ongoing. That's quite, hopefully, quite interesting. So we're in the midst of that. Uh, so we can talk about that at another session um, <laughs> down the track. Um, but yeah, in terms of other work that we do here, so we do teach in uh, sleep science. So we have a couple of courses in sleep science and dental sleep medicine, and hopefully with yourself when you get around to it we'll uh, have something in sleep (laughs) and performance as well Uh, our courses will uh, we aim to have them available within the next month Um, and uh, you can pop that the, uh, the website link on your page when and and it, at the moment it's it's not active but it will be uh, as soon as the courses are available but these
0: are 100 these percent yeah. online so people they're can avail these courses, anywhere yeah. around the world yeah
1: yeah yeah so yeah they give people a um i mean it's they're they're really aimed at people who i mean anyone really with an interest in learning more about yeah. sleep um but you know, people who might want to go into the sleep field, either doing research. You know, they might want want to diversify from their existing research, or they might want to work in a sleep lab. That um, you get a really solid background in in sleep education with with those courses, and and obviously the dental course is for dentists who want to treat people with uh, obstructive sleep apnea. So they they can learn more about um, the dental side as well as the sleep side. And yeah, I yeah. mean, yeah, we also yeah we do community um community talks as well so yeah. you know just uh give people do a lot of uh talks to different work sites and yeah. yeah doing doing one to a school in a couple of weeks so lots of things like that excellent yeah.
0: yeah that's good and i would say as well like uh for anybody even if you are working in more applied sleep settings this is actually a really good course i did this course back in 2014 with um with jen and kat and Peter Eastwood at the time, and I think James Slater were, were all teaching on it. it was very good. It was very applied. So that was like 50% online and 50% face-to-face. And I kind of bitched and moaned a little bit about, oh, why do I have to do this? I'm more like an applied person. But actually, it was a really good grounding in what happens from a sleep science perspective, but also what happens in laboratories and more of a clinical setting. And it's been really helpful for me from an industry point of view or athletes when I'm referring people back to physicians or because I can speak that same language. And I also understand then if I'm doing PSGs in the field with people, like a level two PSG, understanding that data. So having undergone that as a graduate certificate course at UWA, um, initially I was quite reluctant, but I'm so glad now that I did it because it gave me such a good cornerstone to, to launch other work off. So, um, and then obviously we published that paper on sleep disorders and athletes. So yeah. even if you think your career is more applied, uh i wouldn't discount it i would look at it because it's it's such a good kind of you know uh, arrow in your quiver like it's, it's it's it was really good for me to do i, I really i'm glad i did it so yeah so if you're looking at it anybody out there on the fence i'd urge you if you have an interest to uh, definitely enroll and do it it's really good excellent all right jen i'll let you go and get some more pepsi max um, <laughs> until the next time thanks very much
1: thanks ian